Man, I definitely cannot wait for all the, oh my god, he's a Florida State fan comments. It's gonna be great. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another video on my channel. I hope everyone's doing well, but no matter how you're feeling, today is gonna be a little bit better because I've got a new story for you. Today we're once again getting into some more disappearances, this time in the Ridley Creek State Park. I thought it might be fun to discuss a lesser known park. There are many state and national parks across the country that many people may never have heard of, and there's plenty of strange mysteries in each one of them. At the very least, I thought it would be cool that we could accomplish the feat of sharing a story you likely haven't heard before. The Ridley Creek State Park land was originally purchased in the 1960s and officially dedicated to public use in 1972. It covers over 2,600 acres in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and includes parts of Edgemont, Middleton, and Upper Providence Townships. Though it does have a variety of hiking trails, it's not uncommon for locals to just kind of walk through the woods freely. Aside from the usual park activities, this park also has a 300-year-old plantation that has been restored using nothing but 18th century tools. And on any given day, you can actually see interpreters and reenactors on those very grounds to this day. You can see them mending a fence or baking bread. It's actually really cool. They essentially recreate the lives of the former owners. They also have a formal garden area designed by the Olmsted brothers. According to the Wikipedia page, if it's accurate, this firm was established in 1898, making it the first architectural firm in the United States. Unfortunately, though, Ridley Creek also shares its fair share of tragedy. Much like many of the other state parks we cover, there is no shortage of tragic disappearances, unsolved murders, and much more going on within the borders of this small state park. More specifically, there is a Jane Doe case from 2016 that is still actively being investigated that initially sparked my attention to the state park in the first place. She was found approximately at 1 p.m. on January 1st, and her case has been stumping law enforcement ever since. But before we get into all that, I want to tell you a interesting piece of local history, just to set the mood a bit. Thanks to Library Archives, a current resident by the name of Carla Welsh found a newspaper article from 1902. And she instantly knew that others would be just as interested in seeing this as she was. She then shared the information on her social media, and it quickly spread through the small town like wildfire. Interestingly enough, it seemed that many people weren't even aware of this piece of forgotten history. And luckily, Carla discovered it just by chance and was able to resurface it for all of us to enjoy. Or, I guess, be aware of. This is the story of Pennsylvania's first and only known witch trial. This trial happened nine full years before the infamous Salem witch trials began. And one of the women accused was a Delco woman known as the Witch of Ridley Creek. In 1683, a Swedish settler by the name of Margaret Matson lived on a farm in a very wooded area near Crum Creek. She lived there with her husband who went by Niels. Allegedly, Margaret would say strange incantations over a great cauldron of boiling meat. Though, full disclosure, another Swedish woman by the name of Yeshro Hendrickson was also accused and ultimately sentenced, but I was ultimately unable to find any more details as to why or what led to this sentencing. At the time of the witch trials, the colony actually hadn't set up a real justice system yet, so there was no court system to be heard of. First, Margaret was brought before the council on February 7th, 1683. 
and on the 27th, she had her trial with a grand jury in Philadelphia. A pettit jury, witnesses, the attorney general, and the governor were all there. She would plead not guilty, and witnesses would go on to claim that they heard that she was a witch through some very unreliable sources going around town. One man actually stood up and said 20 years prior he had heard that Matson was a witch through the grapevine. So, Basically, there was never any evidence that this woman had harmed anybody, had put spells on anybody. She just so happened to be foreign, probably spoke a little bit differently, probably was doing something just in her native tongue, and was scaring people. But to be honest, did you really think the witch trials were any different? I'm not really all that shocked, because when I imagined the whole witch hysteria in the 16 and 1700s, I kind of imagined it being much like this. I heard she was a witch. Margaret did have an interpreter to help her speak, but she didn't have a lawyer. Despite this, she did relatively well in defending herself. She constantly reminded the jury that each allegation was, in fact, only hearsay. The jury did reconvene and even came with a verdict that very day. Matson was found guilty of having the common fame of a witch, but not guilty in the form of which she stands indicted. I think this basically translates to, you definitely have the reputation of a witch, but we have no proof to show that you are actually a witch. The punishment was actually fairly light, especially for those days. Apparently, Margaret was only required to pay a 50 pound fine and practice good behavior for six months. Obviously, this is a very different result from what happens nine years later in Salem when people are basically just cutting heads off for no reason. Thankfully, that this didn't end in some bloodshed. Anyways, that's it for this witchy story. Praise Shrek, hallelujah, let's move on to the actual mysteries of this video. Okay, so cool history aside, let's get into some modern disappearances. Starting in 2012 with 44-year-old Teresa Mastricola. She was a master sergeant with the Coast Guard and an avid hiker who would often leave town for days at a time to explore the wilderness. She also worked as an imaging equipment specialist at Delaware County Memorial Hospital, and it would be her co-workers there who would ultimately report her as missing when she failed to appear for a shift. On Sunday, December 2nd, she was seen leaving her home. Sometime between 9 and 10 a.m. that morning. A witness who saw her described her as getting into her car wearing her hospital scrubs, assumably showing that she was headed to work. She was also caught leaving work that same day on some surveillance footage from the hospital. But that would be the last time anyone would ever see her alive. Police began their search with Teresa's silver 2006 Mazda, but they would actually discover her body in Ridley Creek State Park on the following Saturday with no sign of her car anywhere. In fact, I can find no mention of the car ever being found anywhere in my research. One would definitely think this is a sign of foul play. Where possibly could her car have gone after she reached the park. The medical examiner ruled her death as helium inhalation causing asphyxiation and ultimately ruled it a suicide. But does that mean that someone coincidentally happened to steal her car that same night? I mean, it's a big coincidence if so, but I guess it is a possibility. Or was it not really a suicide after all? There is very little known information about this case. Maybe we're missing a key detail to make this whole thing fall into place. Who knows? But as it stands currently, this is basically all we know about this story, and I'll definitely keep you updated if we get any more new information around this story. As for that Jane Doe case no one even knew about until 2016, 
on New Year's Day when a couple was hiking through the park, they just so happened to veer off trail into one of the more densely wooded areas of the park, only to discover a body and immediately dial 911. State troopers arrived on the scene and after a 20 minute trek to the area the couple had been, they then saw the remains. They were fully skeletonized and clearly had been there for quite some time. After their initial examination, investigators thought that she probably had died sometime in the winter of 2014. She was a slender, white female with brown hair and a prominent jawline. Though they originally believed her to be in her early 20s, that estimate was eventually revised and bumped up to 45. Her height ranged from 5'3 to 5'10. Unfortunately, this is an incredibly vague description. This description could probably be applied and be applicable to most women we know in our everyday lives. It doesn't really help anybody slim down anything. Investigators tried their damnedest to try to find any information or tips that could help identify this Jane Doe, but to no avail. Jane Doe's death was nearly impossible to determine, but police, for some reason, were rather confident that they could identify her rather shortly. Upper Darby Police Department Superintendent Mike Chitwood stated he believed it could be the remains of Amanda DeGio, who did go missing in 2014. This statement was taken very poorly by the family, though. Amanda's sister, Nicole, made a statement on Facebook saying the comments were inappropriate and unnecessary. After receiving information that the remains were in fact not her sister, Amanda had all four of her wisdom teeth pulled and Jane Doe still had all four of their wisdom teeth. When the 24-year-old mother of two from Drexel Hill vanished, she left behind her phone, her wallet, and didn't bring any extra clothing, though she was not reported missing until August 27th. She had not been seen by her family since returning from Florida in the first week of June, and since it's reported that she doesn't drive, it's unknown how she left home. Nicole worried her sister was being held against her will somewhere, and often searched for her sister in areas well known for drug use and other things. She mentions that she went and looked everywhere in every bad neighborhood possible where she could think somebody would be holding someone. I should be upfront and note that on the FBI's website, it does note that Amanda was a known heroin addict, but I don't think that makes their life in this case any less important. Drug use is a ugly thing, and we all most likely have family members who have dealt with it in some form or another. Addiction can really ruin somebody's life, even if they are a great person. So we shouldn't use that as who they are. They're still valuable, and so many cases get swept under the rug because of these connotations. Nobody is lesser in society because of their hardships. Amanda was also known to suffer from bipolar disorder. Though the case is now over eight years old, investigators are still diligently looking into what happened to Amanda. Investigators are in fact still following every lead. This past September, local and federal authorities searched a property of a home on Red Bump Road in Nottingham. Amanda's mother and sister were on scene that day, but unfortunately no closure would be found. No remains were found on the property, and Amanda's case remains unsolved. With another case so similar, the odds that a match would be made seemed to be in the investigator's favor. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not really the case most of the time, is it? Jane Doe remained unidentified. Her dental records and DNA were checked against the National Missing Persons database, but no dice. 
They even had isotope analysis done on her hair and teeth to help determine maybe where she lived. And it revealed that she was most likely born in Pennsylvania or a surrounding state. Eventually, investigators turned to the Florida Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science in order to create a facial reconstruction of the victim. With a new image to show to the public, authorities were feeling reinvigorated that someone may just recognize Jane Doe. Unfortunately, though, they still weren't so lucky. When the case began, began to run cold, officials released a description of everything found with the body, which consisted of Gloria Vanderbilt brand blue jeans, a blue winter jacket, and a pair of size 9 black totes boots. Nearby was a green plaid blanket and a Route 66 backpack, a navy blue canvas bag, a pair of size 9 gray and pink sneakers in the Skechers brand, a box cutter, and two empty pill bottles. Again, this resulted in zero leads. It seemed as if nobody at all on this entire planet was missing Jane Doe of Ridley Creek. At a dead end, the investigators decided to reinvestigate the victim's clothing. Now that the mud had dried, three gold rings had fallen from the victim's pocket. Each was yellow gold, but the metal had darkened from decay. One was a Clodeau ring with a green stone. Apparently it's like an Irish ring, commonly used for friendships, engagements, and weddings. So basically it could mean anything. One of the rings seemed to have initials carved into them. They could definitely make out the letter C, but the second letter was a bit too distorted. It could either be C-A or C-R. Some have theorized that Jane Doe could have been a homeless woman who succumbed to the elements in the winter, and that could explain why none of her loved ones are aware that she's missing or care, I guess. Then there are those who have made this crazy story that this woman would sell these gold rings in the park, but again, there is no evidence to support any of these rumors and are probably just local speculation. Those rings could have been of great sentimental value to Jane Doe, but I guess we will never know. Maybe she did sell them. Maybe they weren't even hers. But since they're found in the body, you gotta assume they are. I can confidently say that I don't think she expected to die the night she did. We must consider the way the rings were found on her body, though. Since they were concealed and hidden and not on the body itself, maybe she was hiding from someone or hiding them from someone. Maybe she was in fear of being robbed. Like I said, this is all speculation, but who knows, right? Again, if she was even homeless to begin with, this also could just be a habit of hiding your valuable things. But I do struggle to find an explanation as to why no one has been able to identify her, even with all of the technology we have today. Let's close today's video with a discovery made just this past March when a volunteer organization by the name of Adventures with Purpose sent divers to Ridley Creek Marina. This group has actually been responsible for solving multiple missing persons cases in this manner. This time, they were contacted by the family of James Amabile, a man who went missing in 2003 at the age of 38. The day James disappeared, he was on his way back from the babysitter's house picking up his children. He called the babysitter to say he would be about 5 to 10 minutes late picking up his daughters. After that call, they never heard from him again. The location his body was ultimately discovered is actually only a couple of blocks away from the babysitter's home, which only makes the situation that much more tragic. Perhaps there is something to be grateful for, though. Apparently, he was the only person in the vehicle at the time of this accident. Had this car crash happened after he picked up his daughters, this could be a much more tragic situation. James wore an insulin pump and would become disoriented due to low blood sugars. It is believed that this played a part in his demise. Thankfully, now the family can finally have closure and peace knowing this. While the license plate from the car was 
confirmed to be that of James, they could not confirm the identity until the coroner took a look over his body. His identity was 100% confirmed with his dental records. And honestly, who knows how long James's case could have gone unsolved if it wasn't for this dive team. The vehicle was submerged in 24 feet of water, and apparently a pylon was drilled through the front unknowingly by workers. Now, on the surface, this may seem like a pretty open and shut case. A genuine accident, if you will. And I agree, it probably is, especially with the note about that insulin pump. It does seem like all the right boxes were checked, and we can rest easy knowing the man was discovered and eventually brought home. There is one singular line in an article I read that actually kind of makes me question that. On CBSnews.com, it states, The divers chose where to look due to an anonymous tip. Which begs the question, who the hell knew where to look? Like we said, this was 24 feet submerged under the surface. It's not like anybody would casually just see that, and it's not like this was a spot that people actually dived or snorkeled in or anything like that. It's a relatively random area of water. Now, it was James's family who initially reached out to Adventures with Purpose. But as far as I can tell from all the coverage and information made available online, the actual tip of where the car may be located didn't come from the family, and we don't know who it came from. Regardless, the case was ruled an accident, and is therefore unlikely to receive any more investigation. But I just can't help but wondering, accident or not, it's hard to imagine what James must have went through in his final moments. I can't imagine being the family as well, not knowing what happened to him for two decades. But hey, that's life for you. It's terrifying, and every day could be our last. So definitely hold your loved ones tight. I guess that's going to do it for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on this video. Before you go, let me know in the comments what you think about Jane Doe. I would love to know your theories. I'd love to hear your idea of how Jane Doe got there and who Jane Doe could be. Do you think that the Ridley Creek Jane Doe will ever actually be identified? And what do you think the police could do further to actually push this investigation more? It does feel like the local theory about the woman being homeless does seem to check a lot of boxes and is very convenient, but I just can't help but wonder that that might just be an easy cop-out that you see all the time in these Jane Doe cases. Don't forget to do the things I always ask you to do. Slap that like button, silly. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. I upload videos like this almost all the time and have plenty in the backlog. And again, if you have any topics you'd like to see me cover, let me know down below, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.